Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green. This week we have my good friend Miles Burstein joining us. He's going to be talking to us a little bit about the legal background of closing deals. Um, what does it take to get there? What are some obstacles we face? And how's it going in the COVID world today? Really excited to get going, so let's get right into it. So thank you very much for being here, Miles. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this topic today. I think it's a very important topic that isn't exactly talked about. And that topic is how do we get to close? How do we close a deal? You know, it, it, there's so much that goes into the preparation of a deal, finding the deal in the first place, seeing if it actually makes sense financially. But how do we get from that first point to the actual closing and the transfer of funds and um, of the actual product. Uh, so first and foremost, I'd like to welcome you. Um, and how about you tell us a little bit more about what you do and why you're qualified to talk about uh, closing deals? Yeah, um, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Craig. Um, long time listener, first time <laughs> talker. Um, so why am I qualified? But let's take a step back for a second. I graduated business school at GW, went to law school at the University of Miami. Uh, upon graduating law school at the University of Miami, I worked at a law firm up in New York and New Jersey where my practice was specifically to work on commercial real estate um, finance transactions, specifically commercial mortgage-backed securities, and these are loans that are um, closed and they're not held on the bank's books rather than being held on the bank's books. These are loans that are securitized on the open market, packaged together with a slew of other loans and then eventually sold to investors that purchase bonds in these securitizations. So during my time there, specifically, I was negotiating for the lenders um, representing the lenders in these transactions, closing the deals for them, and then moving that to the post-close where I was dealing with the actual securitizers of these deals, um, putting in, basically summarizing all of the facts that you know any investor would need to know about these loans. Eventually, um, I came back down to Miami, where I'm currently working at Bills and Sumberg, which uh, deals with um, also real estate finance acquisitions and specifically commercial mortgage-backed securities as well. Um, we represent the biggest BPs purchaser and special servicer in the uh, industry. Wow. Okay. So, um, how, how do we close? What, what do so we, what do we do? How are we closing? What, what, what's needed to get to close? Cause you know, if I agree with, you know, the, the, if I'm a buyer and I agree with the seller, is that all we need? You know, exactly. I so I'm, I'm happy you asked that. So a lot of individuals that are not really into real estate and you're just starting out, you're wondering, well, great. I, I, I found a property that I love. I, I underwrote it. It makes sense. I found a bank that they're going to give me a, a great deal on an interest rate over a 10 year term. You sign the term sheet, but wait, hold on a second. There's a whole other leg to it, which is the legal side of this now that you need to go through. And this is the whole negotiation process, um, getting the banks everything they need as well. That's 
that are conditions under your term sheet that you signed in order for you to close your deal to get the interest rate that you are going to be paying to the bank over the term. So when the deal comes to me, typically if I'm representing the, the borrower or the lender, it's going to start off by me getting the term sheet. And if I'm on the borrower side, let's say right now we're on the borrower mm-hmm. side of the deal, I'm representing you as the borrower, the bank is going to have a kickoff call. They'll send you a checklist set of, of basically what requirements on the legal end do we need in order to close your loan. First, you're going to need to review and negotiate the loan documents. The loan documents would include a loan agreement, a mortgage, a promissory note, um, an assignment of leases and rents, a guarantee, an environmental indemnity, and so on and so forth. Those are just your legal documentation. Outside of the legal documentation, you're also going to probably have to provide, depending on the type of property, let's say it's a retail property, um, you're going to probably have to supply SNDAs and estoppels. SNDAs are basically saying that, hey, hey, bank, we acknowledge that you have the, basically you have the um, senior position. We recognize you as the lender for our new owner and that in the event that my new owner defaults on the loan, I will honor you as my new landlord. And an estoppel is where the tenant is going to basically uh, fill out facts pursuant to their lease agreement saying that they pay X amount in rent, they are up to date and not in default under their lease agreement, and basically confirming other standard facts uh, on the day-to-day of their lease. Um, other than supplying that type of information, we'd also, so if you are coming in as a, as an entity, rather than as an individual purchasing a property, we will review all of your legal documentation for the corporate, for the corporation or LLC and basically say, Hey bank, we are authorized under the corporation documents to enter into this agreement. And this is the final sign off from the natural person to do the deal. And when I say natural person, I mean, sometimes you got companies that are, that are multi-member, let's say a XYZ LLC has, is controlled by Craig Merlin LLC and Craig Merlin LLC is owned by Craig. The bank or your lender is going to need to see the evidence that gets down to Craig, who manages all of it, that says Craig approved this transaction. So those are just a high level um, view of what is needed in order to propagate you to the closing, as well as title. Anyone that does real estate, you've got to make sure that what you are buying is, is clean, that you don't have someone else saying that I've got rights to your property. Um, you're going to go, you're going to order a title commitment and you're basically going to review your title commitment to make sure that no one else has a right. No one else has a right of first refuse on your property that the current owner of the property is actually miles real quick. Can you talk about what a right of first refusal is? What, what does that mean for, you know, just the listeners that that don't know what that is. Right of first refusal 
and this could be even in a lease um, or a third party or even your parking company that has a right. This is the ability of a third party to purchase the property when it comes for sale. So for instance, let's say I own a single tenant property, like a CVS, and in your lease agreement, it contains a provision that says right of first refusal. So if I own the property, I go and sell, or I go to offer to sell the property to someone else. And let's say you, Craig, you offered me $10 million. Well, you might have to then turn around to your tenant and say, hey, we got an offer for $10 million. You have a right of first refusal on this. You can either accept the $10 million asking price and you will become the new owner of the property or you are going to say, we do not want the property. Thank you. Please proceed with your sale. But a lot of times these become an issue where you already entered into a contract and then you find out that there's a right of first refusal on it. So that could, that is something that could easily blow up your deal and things that you need to look at because sometimes it's not going to be for 100% of your sale price. Sometimes your document might say, Hey, they only need to buy for 90% or 80% of what you got as an asking price. So really it's, it's tricky and, and, and it's something you need to definitely keep an eye out for. So is having a real estate attorney something that every purchaser of a property should have, um, commercial as well as residential? Or is this more of a commercial, um, you know, suggested for commercial investments and uh, operators? What, what would you suggest? I, I would always suggest having an attorney because while, while some people might say, hey, I don't want to spend the money, uh, I don't think that there's going to be an issue. You know, you're spending a lot of money that you worked hard for. Why wouldn't you protect yourself? And that's what we really do. We're here to protect you as our client, whether you're the lender, whether you're the, the buyer. You could be a buyer of your first house, buyer as your first property, as commercial property. I highly recommend always hiring an attorney to review all the documentation and making sure that you are going to be in a good position. Because the last thing you want to do is have this blow up in your face and have an issue down the road. Okay, so I know you were uh, talking to me the other day about a situation that you were just dealing with. You don't have to tell me who the client was or any you know specifics along those lines, but can you, can you uh, explain an issue that you just had to deal with where um, a deal kind of blew up, but you guys were able to save it? Yeah, so I mean, look, we're talking uh, in, a, in a COVID period still. Who thought we'd still be here? It's September. And so back in early of 2020, we started working on a transaction that was scheduled to close come the end of March. Um, when rumblings of COVID started to trickle in, we were still in the negotiation of the purchase and sale agreement and we added language into the purchase and sale agreement that said you know in the event that the borrowers because we represent the lender and we were sorry we we're representing the seller in the event that the buyers uh lender who they had secured at the time backed out because of covid you know it would not be um inability of the buyer to back out of the deal but we would give that buyer 
um, an extension right under the deal to go secure another lender. Because at the time, we didn't know what was going to happen, but we never really thought it would be as bad as it actually ended up getting. So come come mid-March, we're supposed to close, and lo and behold, the buyer's lender backs out. They don't want to do the deal. Um, it's a retail property. Do you, you know, do you know are you allowed to say like the reason why the lender would, would pull out? Well, I mean, it's here's the thing with, with lenders back in March, April, and even now, like what lenders are, 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 are doing right now is they're being cautious, right? They want properties that are class A and, and safe. They want to know that the tenants that are at the property are going to be there in the long run, right? Lenders aren't in the business of lending money to someone that's just going to default, you know, two months, three months down the line because tenants no longer are paying the rent or not cable paying the rent. They're defaulting. And so they got to take the property. The bank isn't in the business of, of being a property manager. The bank is in the, the business of loaning money, collecting money on the interest. And that's it. So what happened in this deal was like any other lender at the time, the lender got spooked. The lender didn't want to lend the money on a, on a, on a retail property that they didn't think was a viable property. So what then happened was the, the buyer and the seller obviously got into a dispute because, hey, as the, as the buyer, we don't have money now. We, we don't have the money to come up at closing, which is supposed to be at the end of the month. But we're going to exercise our right to extend it so we can try and find So the buyer still was interested in the deal, even though they didn't have that financing at that point? They still wanted to stay well, in the here's, deal? Here's, here's the funny thing, right? So once you get past your inspection period in these deals, you, it, there, there's a concept of you go hard. Mm-hmm. Basically meaning the deposit money that you put up is now gone, right? Unless me as the seller, I do something so absurd and that I default that says, hey, buyer, you get your money back, right? So when you've got a lot of money put up in deposit, you don't wanna walk away. You're gonna obviously gonna try and do everything you can to close the deal because you wanted the deal, but you also don't wanna walk away from the money that you put up in the first place. Mm-hmm. So what then happened was they were trying to line up additional lenders and lenders are obviously gonna want their SNDAs and estoppels. And we had previously worked to get all these estoppels back in early March and come, you know, mid April now where we agreed to extend it, we're, you know, being reasonable. Those estoppels become stale, right? You've got tenants that were paying tenants, not in default back in March, but here we are in April and coronavirus hits, everyone's shelter in place can't open your stores, you're not generating revenue. So tenants aren't able to pay anymore. You've got, you've got stale, stale estoppels. You've got tenants that are now defaulting. So what are you gonna do? You know what I mean? So us as the buyer, we get to the point where we're supposed to close and you know, so the buyer wasn't able to close. We're the seller, the buyer could not close the deal. Um, in, in, the this, next- in this situation, Miles, is is the seller able to then just walk away and keep that hard money or or are they still tied to this contract? Or is that on a case by case basis? It's on a case by case basis. Nine out of 10, if your seller has done everything that they're supposed to do, 
which isn't much, right? They are entitled to that money. Unless, like I said, they did something to default or they did not deliver something that needed to be delivered. But, but my question is, would they, is it, is it uh, prudent for them, I guess I'm asking, for a seller to say, hey, I got this hard money, this is free money, um, kind of screw the buyer, I'm going to keep this money and find a new buyer? Or, should they, or is it in their best interest to say, hey, you know, in the end, I'm happy with this deal, whatever, uh, let's keep going forward and hope in the end um, we can close? Or are you even allowed to add an addendum that says, let's add another time period of hard money? Okay, well, first of all, uh, it all, you know, as every lawyer's favorite saying goes, it depends, right? It depends <laughs> on the finance situation. It depends on, you know, what their view of the market is at the time, right? If you think you're getting a great deal here and you think that you are not going to be able to get this deal because it is COVID, you want to work with these guys, then you're going to enter into an amendment to the PSA and say, hey, hold on, you guys, we want to do this deal with you. Let's extend out the period here. Let's work together. Let's be reasonable. Yeah, you can do that. But on the other end of it, it's if you've got such a great property that you think that it is going to sell regardless of whatever market it is right now, then yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, goodbye and good luck. You know, I mean, I've, I've been on both ends of the table at this point where you've got clients that are in, in the mindset of, you know what? That's not my fault, buyer, that you were not able to perform. I, I understand where the world is today, but hey, that's not my problem. But you've also got sellers that are in the position that are like, you know what, this is a good deal. Let's let's try and make it work. And ultimately, in, in the particular deal we were working on, it ended up working out for them. They, they extended it out. They finally found the lender, the buyer. Um, we closed it about two weeks ago. So I mean, it was a deal that we started off right back in the end of January and it took until September to close, but hey, it closed. Okay, Miles, so you were talking about COVID um, and in one of my previous episodes, uh, we were talking about something called force majeure. Um, as an attorney, can you explain that a little bit more? Um, because I don't exactly understand fully what that means and how it can be utilized. Yep, so... Big topic during COVID, um, something that, you know, if you really were outside of South Florida with hurricanes, you really never even took such a, a term into consideration. Um, so look, force majeure is something that's like an act of God or hurricane or something big natural force that the parties did not expect that basically delays or or stops the deal. So for example, in a lease, if you've got a force majeure provision in there, and we saw this a lot with a lot of clients of ours when they came to us because they were not able to pay because they were closed, they wanted to know, is a government shutdown um, a safeguard from me from having to pay my rent? And in looking at a lot of leases, some lease provisions said that in the event of a, of a force majeure event, in the event that you've got a hurricane that comes in, an uh, act of God or, or governmental shutdown, you were not excluded from paying rent. You still had to pay your rent. And others were silent on that. So the stance was that we were not gonna pay the rent because we were unable to at the time. 
Um, it was, it, it's, it's been a long road dealing with tenants. Um, you know, we've, we, we haven't seen, you know, a ton of tenants yet go, um, out of business because we've been dealing with landlords that were willing to work with them during such a period of time. You've also had governments that were basically staving off foreclosures and all of that. So, I mean, I, I don't think the worst has yet to come. I know we didn't you know, bring that as a topic yet, but the worst is, is still potentially out there with, with retail uh, tenants because Look, South Florida is only back at 50% indoor dining, um, indoor and outdoor. And who's to say that another shutdown isn't possible if we really reopen, right? You know, tenants are getting back on their feet and they're just starting to be able to pay rent again. Is force majeure something that's in every contract like there's standard language that comes i guess standard in contracts is force majeure one of those where because you have a legal document backed i guess by the american court system that force majeure is a part of it or is that something that needs to be specifically put in well first of all i think we can all say going forward that it will most likely 100 percent <laughs> of the time going forward it will be in your legal document before coronavirus, um, COVID, it was something that was typically in there as well as a boilerplate type language. It's a typical standard language that you would find in your document, but nine out of 10, you weren't really looking at it, right? Like that was something that's standard, never really thought of. You looked at it, but never really had to think about, oh my God, something's gonna happen, unless it's like a hurricane. Now, that's probably one of the hot topics that you definitely look at. And if you're representing the tenant, you are going to try and negotiate in the terms if there is a force majeure event, including a governmental shutdown, you do not need to pay rent. Now, good luck, you know, getting your landlord to say yes to that, because if your landlord's got a lender, you know, they've got to make their payments and their payments are based off of the rental income that you're supplying. So as we've seen it's 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 a rocky road and and it's tough it's it's tough out there right now yeah it'll be interesting to see how um the landlord tenant relationship moves forward uh as of now it already or before covid it already seemed like you know it's not exactly the uh most harmonious relationship between a landlord and a tenant and now you throw in force majeure where a landlord potentially might not get paid. And the only person that kind of gets screwed out of this is the landlord because the bank's still gonna get their money. The tenant is yeah. gonna be allowed to stay in. So the landlord might be the only one that actually has to pay. So it, in my eyes, it somewhat de-incentivizes landlords to invest in properties because yeah, I mean, they're, look, the, they're I, taking on so much more risk than they were before. Look, the risks now, and as I said earlier in the podcast, the risks now are, are greater than ever. Um, you know, I, I'm always of the mindset, treat your landlord right. And hopefully in a time of need, he'll treat you right as well. Um, because, you know, landlords' hands are tied if they've got a lender, right? They've got an obligation to make the payments. And on these, on these deals, as any other deal, 
they're they're personally they're probably guaranteeing the loan to the lender. So if you default on the loan, the lender is going to potentially come back to you personally, right? So we're in a world where it's doggy dog. It's you have to have to do what's best for you. So you as a tenant, you're obviously going to say, "Hey, landlord, I can't pay you. Deal with it." Well, it's a cyclical effect too. You've got your landlord who's got a lender they've got to answer to, and they're going to say, "Hey, lender." Don't know what you want me to do about it, right? Deal with it. Wow, so that's that's fairly tough, uh, a, a tough position to be in, and I assume that in the end, uh, you know, Big Brother is going to have to step in like they have already and either have some sort of guarantees or some sort of insurance that's put in that protects against these types of situations. And Big Brother, I mean the government. Um, so let's get back to closing. Uh, Miles, can you tell us a little bit about what the process is of closing? Yeah. So let's, let's start off with your loan documentation. You've got, you've got your loan documentation, your title process and your closing process, right? So let's, before we get to the closing process, before we even get there, we've got to take a step back. So loan documents, what are they? They are your agreement with your lender. And what are the types of loan documents? You've got your loan agreement, which is your main document here that spells out the basic terms and agreements that you as the borrower are agreeing to with your lender. So for example, on a monthly basis, let's say you own a retail property, you had the pleasure of having a bunch of tenants that hopefully did not you know, enact their force majeure, or if they didn't have a force majeure, then they're hopefully still paying you. But let's say lender says, hey, on a monthly basis, not only do you have to pay me your principal and interest, but you also need to put money into specific reserves. For example, let's say you've got a, a retail strip center that is currently at 60% occupancy, but you know that because you did your underwriting, you did your homework, this is why you wanted this property, you're gonna get that 40% rented up, that additional 40%, you're gonna bring this property up to 100%, right? The lender's gonna say, that's awesome, that's great. But we want you, in order to make sure that when you're gonna give some concessions to these tenants, when they're signing up these leases, that you've got the money for any tenant improvement costs, any leasing commissions that you're gonna have to dish out. So we're gonna say, hey, on a monthly basis, on top of your principal and interest, we want you to escrow for tenant improvements and leasing commissions. We want you to escrow for a whole slew of things, right? Certain reserves. If you have um, items on your property based off your inspection when looking at the property, that there would be work that needed to be done, like a so they make a PIP reserve. Um, so there are certain reserves that you and your lender are going to establish. They're going to want you to set up with a bank and escrow that on a monthly basis. Um, on top of that, they're going to say, Hey, you know, while we, we like you as a person, we think that your property is generating a lot of cash flow. God forbid something goes wrong. Who's going to be liable? You're going to enter into what's called a guarantee agreement. You are going to put up a, an individual or a company that has net worth and liquidity that are satisfactory to the lender that says, okay, in the event of a default and you need to come after me, 
I have the net worth and liquidity to come up with the money that is owed at the end of the day. We've got recordable documents like your mortgage and your assignment of leases and rents, which show up on your title report. These are documents that are basically saying, hey world, this is the owner of the property, okay? You've also got your promissory note, which is a super important document that is essentially your proof, your evidence to the, that the bank holds the note. They hold my loan, okay? You only execute one of them. You better hold on to that, right? So we've got these documents that basically say, this is the deal, this is my notice to the world, and this is the piece of paper that proves it. So once we've negotiated it and gone back and forth, the lenders council and us, and and we've secured all of those estoppels and SMBAs that we spoke about earlier, then we get into a position where we get to closing. And at closing, we bring in the acquisition side of the deal. We've got your seller and buyer, and we've got the lender now involved, and we've got what they call as an escrow agent, which is holding your deposit money, and they are saying, hey, we've got you know certain issues that popped up along the line. We're gonna deal with prorations. We're gonna deal with the amount of money that you as the the buyer and borrower need to come up with and pay. So the lender's gonna fund the money into the escrow. They're going to subtract the amount that you've already have in deposit. And that money ultimately is gonna get wired to the seller. But in order to do that, you've gotta you know, get your settlement statements. You've gotta sign up and have all your documents ready to be recorded because you want your recordable documents to be filed that same day that you close. Because God forbid, someone puts a lien on your property and says, hey, we've got claims to this property. You don't want any gap in, in between that. You as the, and the lender's always gonna say, hey, we are the first in line, never the second. We are the first. So to, to the bank, that is priority number one, is get these documents recorded so that they say, hey world, while this is the owner, we hold the mortgage and note. Okay, um, so tell me a little bit about social distancing. Are we closing still in person? How does that work? I have not had an in-close, so it's a great question. Um, and it's, it's a complicated answer. Are we closing in person? No. The better question is, a lot of these documents require a notary. Exactly, to and witnesses and witnesses and that has made this process a lot harder but as we are in the year 2020 technology is is a lot further than it was back in the early days here right so the abilities now to be able to electronically sign and have electronic notarization is possible it's at our fingertips these are things that were not utilized as much prior to COVID, but it has been very, very helpful uh, recently in trying to close these deals and getting them signed in time. That's great. So, I mean, even in a crazy time like this, we can still find deals, move through the process of negotiation and get to closing 
while still being safe. You know, so so nobody has to have the fear of, oh, I'm not going to close on this because what if they have COVID? What if they, you know, who knows about what right, the next virus. You don't want to have to go to some random person's house and go sign some, you know what I mean? Like, it's a weird world we're living in, you know, but the fact that technology is so great and everyone is able to work from home, we're now able to also sign electronically, notarize electronically, witness electronically. So thank God we're in a play in, 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 a, in a time technology wise where the capabilities are there. That's definitely true. And I, I agree with that. Um, so we unfortunately are out of time, Miles. I really appreciate you coming on, explaining this. Um, helping people get to their closing, uh, making deals, and protecting them legally. Um, that's very important and something that, uh, you know, unless you're very involved in real estate, you don't really think about. So make sure you're always protected, especially in major transactions like real estate. You know, it's not just going to the grocery store and spending a hundred bucks here and there. It's, these are major, usually the biggest, um, financial transactions in somebody's life is their real estate transaction, whether it's residential or commercial. So thanks for talking with us, Miles. Yeah. Yeah. Not a problem. Um, I know this is called getting on the green, but I think the uh, legal end of this is probably called hitting the putt. (laughs) Well, uh, we, we play a a good amount of golf together. Um, so you keep teaching me the, uh, legal aspect and uh, protecting my butt and I'll, you know, give you a couple of tips here and there on the golf course. Yeah, that'd be nice. Maybe I won't put one in the water three times in a row next time, right? <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Miles. Right, thanks for having me, Craig. So there you have it. Miles talked to us a lot about uh, what it takes to close the deal. Um, a lot of the things that we're going to face, uh, whether it's issues, we heard of one of his stories about how everything was about to fall apart, but then, you know, through the work of everybody coming together, um, the deal worked out in the end. Um, So if he used any jargon that you don't understand, look it up, go back and listen again, Um, consult with your own legal help. Uh, It's really important, as you heard, that um, no real estate deal really should be done without at least a lawyer taking a look at the contract and the terms and things along those lines. Uh, it, It truly protects you in the end. Spend a little bit of money now so that you're not spending a lot of money later. Um, It's kind of one of those uh, things that I really go by where even though you don't really want to spend that extra money now, you say, all right, I'm going to hope for the best. It's really in the best interest of you and um, potentially even your clients to bring in that lawyer, review that contract, review those terms, and truly understand what is written in the fine print, um, if nothing else it puts a liability on them. <laughs> um, so next week, we are going to be talking about technology, how that's affecting the real estate world. We've got an awesome guest, and I am really excited about it. So we will see you next time on The Green.